0: Welcome to the Diane Podcast. Diane, or Diversity and Inclusion in Asia Network, is the leading network of companies and professionals committed to advancing diversity and inclusion in their organizations in Asia. Leveraging a decade of expertise and thought leadership, we hope this podcast inspires, educates, and motivates passionate individuals like yourself. My name is Tina Arcelia, Senior Manager at Community Business, and I manage the DIA Network. Joining us today is Gulnar Vaswani. She works across Asia as a talent management strategist. She's an advisor and an enabler, and is reimagining leadership for the 21st century, helping leaders to understand and embrace inclusiveness, cross-cultural dynamics, and diversity. It's great to sit down for a chat, Gulner. Thank you. Very very nice to be here. So you work extensively across multiple areas of diversity, from gender and generational diversity to inclusive leadership and culture change. But we know that a big focus of your work has been on culture and cross-cultural sensitivity. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Why is this necessary and what does this type of work generally entail?
1: Absolutely, um, Tina. And as I've said this to to you and to community business before, I think in a way, this career or this this leg of my career chose me. Um, diversity and inclusion chose me, rather than the other way around. Um, if you may remember, I've transitioned from a career in, in in corporate finance, so that was the first decade of my of my career. And 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 to be honest, I. The areas I focus on, um, namely culture, gender, and generational diversity, are really areas that that matter to me, and I feel like I have a personal experience navigating. So so the diversity that is sort of incompatulated but with my life is um is, is is the areas that I work on. An example of that was the very first conference I I spoke at for community business. I did a session on the face of conflict in Asia, if you may remember?
0: Yes, yes, that's right. Back in twenty fourteen here in Hong Kong.
1: So I mean and why and, and I think the title, if I remember, was Why It Matters for aspiring women leaders. And I said that because my first team, well, I led my first team at 22. Um, I grew up in a very patriarchal, traditional family structure who who definitely empowered and celebrated my ability, but, but definitely was considered to, my career was definitely to be considered working in a man's world. So, so gender roles, um, generational challenges are something that I've faced pretty much through my life and definitely through my career. So when I, when I designed the face of conflict, the intention was really to get some skills and tools for women leaders to to, to surface differences, to be able to express their views, to be able to form an opinion, to be heard, um, to be seen without it being confrontational or aggressive. So this was more of a culmination of of tools that I've used through my life and and, and in a way was the way for me to share that with um, the audience at your conference.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Gilner. You know, we always enjoy having you speak at our events and provide a bit of necessary disruption. I always come away from your workshops with interesting new things to mull over. Now, reflecting on your work with companies and leaders over the past decade, what have you learned? What tend to be key factors for a company's success?
1: Absolutely. I think the key learnings have been abundant, um, which really is to say the gratitude I feel for for working and 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 stumbling in a way onto this path, I think we've come a long way. I think we rest on the laurels of those before us and and in a way, what i even ten years ago when I first embarked upon my own um, consulting and training practice, I had no idea how big diversity and inclusion would be. i don 't think anyone did because I think. Traditionally, you've you've looked at diversity trainings as something that's very skill-based, very behavioral-based, but the learning I think that I feel the entire industry has had, and definitely me, is that the behaviors are only sustained if there's a belief to align to it. And so the behavioral change, or, or let's say the skills aspect of diversity training, unless it's actually looked at in light and in context of a belief system. And remember, belief systems are, are very culturally programmed. They're, they're very subconscious. So unless we have a belief to align to a behavior, what, what we don't find is the sustainability of these new learned behaviors. So diversity training that only focuses on behaviors is not sustainable. So I think that's, that's um, one of the learnings. The other learning, and this may be more of a macro um, learning, is that change is difficult. Even the most um, – the, the well-intentioned, the best-intentioned companies and leaders who have the intention to embed inclusion and be more inclusive in their own leadership and that of their teams and their cultures, to sustain the motivation to have the courage to, to, to sustain and, and dig your heels in, to commit to this change, um, is difficult. And 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 so what I've learned is, and I think a lot of this is from your research, which has been very aligned to, to, to my belief systems, is that, you know, there's a need to or have to um, for companies or for even individuals to, to be motivated enough to have the compelling need enough to commit to the change because it is difficult we're talking about a paradigm shift. We're not talking about something that we can do differently. It's about how can we feel differently because diversity at at the most basic level is, is often what we see as differences, but inclusion is something that we feel. And so it's a lot less tangible. It's a lot less measurable to say, do we have an inclusive culture? But the good news is, another change I find, is that we're actually separating the two. Even though the industry likes to call it diversity and inclusion or inclusion and diversity, we see that a lot of the the, the talent and, and, and senior leadership um, individuals are finding that, oh, we know that there is a difference now. Inclusion is the action. It's to be inclusive. So we're having sort of a delineation of, of what diversity is and, and what, um, Inclusion is. And I think the last big learning of this decade, and perhaps maybe to your next point will be about where do we see this going, is the cultural insensitivity. And if I may say so boldly, that um, not being sensitive to the different regions and the diversity of markets and, and audiences that we're working with and working in to believe that what works here, perhaps in a headquarter culture, will work everywhere has been a blind spot for, and a very expensive one for many organizations. And I think understanding that their strategic drift could come from either a sense of ethnocentricity, which is basically saying our way is the right way, or just a blind spot of saying, you know what? What works here will work there. And often than not, what I've seen most of my clients and, and many reports say is that what works there probably will kill you here.
0: Very well phrased, Gunner. Businesses need to take that to heart, that we need to truly appreciate the differences across Asia. Otherwise, we risk making a potentially costly mistake. I also want to pick up on your point that inclusion requires action, that it requires a paradigm shift. But with the global socio-political changes that we've been observing, the rise of populist nationalism for one, and the disruptions to the workforce and the marketplace, as we look ahead to the next five, ten years, what kind of conversations and paradigm shifts need to happen? What types of issues do we need to be prepared for? And really, what are your thoughts on how companies should respond? Um, I think
1: really looking at it from a – let me me set the context as I see it with with, um, what I call globalization gone wrong. Um, Business and society are are kind of in a state of upheaval. It would be fair, I think, to say that we are at unprecedented levels of change where somehow the trust as well is at an all-time low, uncertainty is an all-time high. I think leaders are finding themselves in very uncharted territories. So in a way what we're doing is we're redefining or, or, or to, to my um, inspiration, we're reimagining leadership for the realities of our time. But, but with that comes challenges and opportunities uh, that, that call for this different type of leadership, that calls for, for leaders to navigate and thrive across geographies, across cultures, across generations. With my approach, what, what I do is I challenge companies or I challenge leaders to, to think what does leadership in the 21st century mean for you? And, and I look at this as an opportunity for, for growth, for, for impact, and, and culture. You see, culture is the individual culture, which I think for good or for bad, it's finally being addressed as an important contributor to, to difference. The growth metric that really drove globalization was really just to to grow and do business with these diversity of markets, with diversity of customers, with diversity of needs and preferences. But like I said earlier, there's almost a sense of, well, we know that they're different, but they may want the same thing or they may want it delivered in the same way. And I think that's where the fallacy of thought is. Um, a bit whimsical, but I call this diversity paradox that says, well, on one hand, we are all the same at a human nature level. On the second hand, we are all different. We're all unique, even twin sisters and, and brothers. And um, the third aspect of the diversity paradox is we are more like some than others, which then gives rise to groupthink and affinity bias, um, hiring in your own image, befriending in your own image. And and speaking of that, a big, big um, sort of jargon, trend, whatever you want to call it in the L&D and and D&I world has been, been this unconscious bias training that many, many organizations roll out. And to my earlier point, they roll out in exactly the same way across different regions, which then gives me to say, give, gives rise to the fact that is our way or is this way going to be impactful across regions? And, and as somewhat of a bridge to the East and West um, understanding and orientation, I can absolutely say to you that sometimes something as simple as repackaging the title of a workshop. um, Using words that are very Western psychology based like bias or unconscious doesn't always land um, as well as as perhaps it does in the US or or North America or, or the European continent. If you remember, Tina, when we did the adopting an Asian lens for talent development with um, community business, and I was honored and privileged to contribute to that as a cross-cultural expert, I think that was a really fantastic report that showed that talent development cannot come uh, from a one-size-fits-all. And you, I think in the report, we talked about what are the mindsets, what are the attitudes that will help us prepare for this new future that we've all co-created? And my answer to that is really agility, having this adaptable flex leadership muscle, right? Because we don't just do unto others as we want done, we now need to do unto others as they want done. And the key here is how do I know what my various diverse members on my team want done and, and, and how to approach them? And I think the most important skill, this is something that the millennials do very naturally, is is curiosity. And I know we don't think of curiosity as a skill. We think of it as, you know, you're either curious or you're not. But curiosity is the only way that we know how to help leaders, individuals, suspend judgment uh, of difference. Because if we're going to help embrace difference and, and leverage difference, we first have to learn to suspend our interpretation of difference. And, and judgment is natural, judgment is normal. So bias is normal, it's not something that's wrong with us to be. And so my approach is really to be cross-culturally sensitive when we, when we target training and development initiatives. Um, rollouts are great, but again, if we're dealing with very hierarchical cultures, we need to be sensitive to who's in the room when we discuss topics like unconscious bias. And, and again, a lot of emerging changes, we need to do it in, in bite-size, achievable, demystified, understandable, sensitive approach rather than a blanket approach, which I've seen many, many organizations take to kind of check the box, unfortunately.
0: Great, great. So what I'm hearing is three things agility, adaptability, and curiosity, which we see and various studies attest are incredibly important skills or traits for the future. Speaking of the future, we'd love to hear what type of work you're doing these days. What new and exciting things do you have in store?
1: Absolutely. I think... um... I'm going to. I keep continuing to design um, cultural awareness, uh, inclusion trainings, and, and a range of programs to embed culture change. But of, of more of late, I've been working and advising with senior leaders um, on their talent strategy, their 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 people strategy, and aligning it to their business strategy. Um, and sometimes that involves looking at their culture, uh, auditing their culture for inclusiveness.
0: Right. Right. Just. Quickly picking up on talent strategy, what do you find is the biggest challenge that companies you're working with are most concerned about? So, Tina,
1: from my experience in the APAC region this last decade, and I can say this with some with great certainty, I think the tsunami around the corner for us is the millennials entering the workforce. And the way that's being measured is is really kind of what I call a new measure of success. It's, it's, it's um, namely innovation and, and engagement, right? So you've heard, we've all heard, you know, people like Bill Gates say innovate or die. We've heard that diversity has been tied to, um, you know, creative thinking, innovation over, over the period of a team. But I think engagement, just like we used to look at retention, as tied to the business case of diversity. Um, we're looking at engagement levels of the millennials wavering, to say the least. Um, some of my clients will report up to 30 to 50% of their workforce already falling within this age group. And I think every generation feels that there's a, 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 a bridge, a void, or a gap between them and their previous generation. but. This generation, because they've been born in the greatest pace of change, um, globalization, and of course, let's not forget the giant um, contributor to our changing world is technology. I think they are a very empowered, um, entitled, empowered, whatever you want to call it, whichever generation you come from, um, amazing force that are a force to be reckoned with, and my sort of, not threat, but my fear my risk to mitigate is what are we going to do about those empty seats in our in our companies if we don't find ways to flex our leadership style, maybe even flex our policies, um, flex our mindsets and and be more agile in our in our development, our retention, our recruitment, are all our approaches across talent development. So so to me, this is the biggest piece that's changing with um, talent strategy. I don't think, I do not fall prey to the cynics and the skeptics that say this is the lazy generation. I think that they are, they've are—they've got, they've got uh, my experience from working with the millennials um, has been incredibly rewarding, incredibly enriching, and I'm very, very hopeful uh, that perhaps looking at engagement is perhaps more of a, an indicator of performance, high performance. And, and, and interestingly, what, what, what's coming to mind right now, Tina, is a study that um, ties maybe everything we've spoken about together. Is, is um, Harvard Business School was, was hired by Google to study 180-something of their teams across the world. So, so you know, transcending culture now. And, and they asked, what's the single most important thing for high-performing teams? And this was called Project Aristotle, for anyone who wants to look this up. And and of course, as a diversity consultant, I would like to think that maybe diverse teams are the highest performing, but it wasn't the number one reason that these teams were high performing. The number one reason was something that we call psychological safety. Um, And I found that very interesting. I found that leaders who impart psychological safety to their team members, who then give them the ability, the confidence, the courage to speak what naturally comes up for them, a forum for them to express their ideas, to be able to admit to our mistakes, to be able to feel safe enough to make mistakes so that we actually learn and leverage from them. And I found that really interesting because that's, Many of the millennial studies I've read and and, and experienced, that's exactly what they want. That's exactly what this workforce is looking for, is to feel safe, to be included, and to to make a difference.
0: Gulnar, I'm so glad to hear your views on millennials. And for raising the concept of psychological safety, which applies regardless of what generation you come from, the capacity to call out mistakes or, or share a good idea should not be seen as overstepping or as being, quote, entitled. What I take away from this conversation is that we need to be deliberate and conscious as we manage change and flex, as you say, leadership and policies. Essentially, we need to keep our people safe, engaged, and included. Right. So lots to think about. Thank you. Any last words for the people listening in today?
1: Absolutely. I mean, and I think you you said it, Tina. You you captured it really lovely. Um, and and unless we're conscious and we have a conscious commitment to this change, um, and and we have the compelling need or or the reason that will sustain this. Energy that will be required to change or to look at our culture very honestly, much of the training and development initiatives are not sustainable. And my fear is, here's my fear, and I I hate to end on a a fearful note because I am a very positive, um, hopeful person. My fear is that the word diversity is not going to pass the eye-rolling test. And and, and, and by, by that I mean, the minute we hear the word diversity, are people going, oh, my God, here comes the diversity people? Or do we have this sense of hope and inspiration that's now tied, that inclusion is actually tied as a strategic imperative? And so not this fear and doom and gloom of do or die, but it's a matter of saying, why do we need to look at inclusion as perhaps a strategic driver to our business goals and not just something that's a nice thing to do.
0: Wow. After the past 20 minutes with you, I definitely have that sense of hope and inspiration. This has been an incredibly enlightening session. Thank
1: you, Tina. And thank you to all of you at Community Business. It really has been a pleasure and an honor to to partner with you.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone listening in. Join me next time as I speak with cultural coach and author Tom Vergus. We'll be talking about the so-called invisible elephant and other obstacles to growth.